Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now, let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of Conservation Unfiltered. This is a bonus episode of Meet a Biologist. Uh, In this episode, you'll hear the entire full interview with Janine Flegel, wildlife biologist with the Pennsylvania Game Commission, specifically in the for the deer and elk section. So I hope you enjoy this whole interview all together, uninterrupted, minus a commercial or so, uh, and really get to the bottom of what her job is and, and how she got to be at the point of being a wildlife biologist. Okay, and joining us today is Janine Flegel. She is a wildlife biologist with the Pennsylvania Game Commission's Deer and Elk Section. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, get to talk to you again. It's been a while since uh, I've been able to talk to you. So uh, why don't you uh, sort of catch me up a little bit on some things you've been working on? Uh, okay. So the last time we cross path was you came out to uh, try to catch some deer. And unfortunately, that didn't work out for us. Well, I mean, we caught deer with with the project, but you weren't able to witness any of the fun. Um, but since then, that project, which is the Deer Forest uh, Project or the Deer Forest Study, is still continuing on. Uh, which entails different um, activities depending on the time of year. So we just completed deer capture uh, a couple months ago. Now uh, crews are switching to vegetation monitoring, which isn't nearly as exciting, but still very important data. Um, And just general deer stuff in in Pennsylvania, so. Yeah, that was, uh, Talon came out with me, and, and that was a uh, great experience for both of us. Uh, we're, it was great for us to be able to ask questions and, and see the process. Unfortunately, like you said, we didn't we didn't catch any deer. Uh, the, that And honestly, for the first time in my life, I actually went into the woods to try to catch a deer. So, uh, <laughs> so my wife was finally right. Um, but um, it was it was interesting just the way that that, that sort of works out um, the way that you guys you know catch deer in, in the in the pens and and bait them in um, where it didn't work out for us this time to be able to come out and and volunteer our time to try to help you wrangle up some deer but it's definitely something we want to try to do in the future I feel like that would be a cool experience to be able to put your hands on a live deer yeah it, I mean really that's that's kind of the most exciting thing with regard to um, when people think of wildlife biology and what that work entails, it's always um, animal capture. And honestly, it's one of the smallest portions of, of the job, um, which is unfortunate because that's what lures most of us into it. And then lo and behold, when we finally get here, so to speak, 
it's like, oh, you don't do that very much. <laughs> so it's a little bit disappointing, but, you know, that's all right. The work is still good. Yeah, I feel like that's a lot of jobs. There's always the exciting thing is what pulls people into those fields, but the exciting things tend to be the things that happen the least. There's always, you know, more paperwork than you assume there will be and that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. You know, when, um, you know, you see things on Animal Planet or or things like that, people interacting with, with wildlife like they do on TV, it's never like that in real life. And honestly, um, it's, it's good. While animal capture is exciting, it's incredibly stressful, not only to the animal, but to the people involved. Um, I always find when I have the responsibility of an animal in my care, uh, it's, it's so stressful. Uh, my job is completely focused on that animal and to get it out as quickly as possible. It's, uh, usually I finally have fun when the quote, you know, air quotes of fun when the animal is long gone and, uh, out, out, back out into the world. So. So a, a lot of people go into their fields of study and into their careers, you know, where they sort of, they had an aha moment uh, whenever they decided, hey, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So when, how and when did you decide to become a biologist? When did you sort of say to yourself, I think that looks cool. I, I would really like to do that. Uh, that's a great question. And I never thought of it as an aha moment, but it really was. It was for me anyway. Um, I did my undergraduate uh, work at a school, a small school uh, called the University of New England, which is located in Maine. And my senior year, a new professor came on board, Dr. Catherine Ono. I will never forget her as long as I live. Uh, and she came from California. And her class uh, she taught a marine biology class, uh, marine mammals class specifically, because her focus uh, was stellar sea lions, and she had a stellar sea lion project out in California. They're on the those sea lions that are on the west coast, um, and that school was a liberal arts school. We never had any really focused uh, wildlife management classes. It was you know liberal arts. You took a little bit of everything, even though my um, my focus was environmental science when I was there. But every uh, summer, she would hire a couple of her students to be uh, her field techs for her field work. And I thought, well, why not? So she had three different field sites uh, on the West Coast, two of them were in Alaska, and one of them was off um, was on an island off of California. And I was fortunate enough to be chosen as one of the students to do some of this research, which was behavioral. Um, so I spent eight, or excuse me, ten to twelve hours a day in a blind, watching a beach full of sea lions, and. I'm like, wow, that sounds great, right? So they, they shipped me off. My island was a little island called Marmot Island off of Kodiak Island in Alaska. And what I got paid for this was per diem. 
So I, it was completely volunteer. I got my plane ticket out there and my plane ticket back and, you know, per diem uh, for, for six weeks. And this island is uninhabited. It was myself and uh, another tech who was my partner for doing observations because the days in Alaska are really, really long. So we split the shift. And there were two other people from um, NOAA there that were doing other research uh, on a different beach on this island. So there were four of us total on this island, and we lived in this little cabin um, and with no communications. The only communication we had was a radio in case there was some sort of emergency. We got, I took my first helicopter ride from Kodiak to this little island. And they dropped us off. They dropped us off. And that was it. And I was all alone, all by myself, with these three other people that I didn't know for the next six weeks. And hiking to the blind from the cabin was about 45 minutes. And the first time we got there was this cabin, or excuse me, this blind was on the side of a cliff. And they set up ropes that I had to shimmy down to get to this little blind. And I thought... I had almost a panic attack because it's like, I'm stuck here. I can't get off the island. I'm going to have a complete meltdown with people I don't know. Oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? So after I kind of got over that, the first time I got down there and I didn't die, um, it was awesome. Well, I say it was awesome until those six weeks were up because the other thing about this island or anywhere in that general area of Alaska, it's incredibly wet. We were there yes. for six, six weeks, and I should have known this, because when we got on the island, it was a beautiful sunny day, but everything was covered in moss. I thought, huh, wow, you know, it's beautiful and sunny, but it rained every day. I think we maybe had five days of sunshine the entire summer I was there. And the day came that we were going to leave and go back to Kodiak, and I couldn't wait. Get me off that island as fast as I can. <laughs> it was awful. And because of the weather, we didn't know if we were going to be able to get out that day. And I'm like, oh, please let me get off this island. So we finally got back, finally got a real shower and all those things. And I was happy and I got to flew home to, I lived in suburbia and, you know, in Massachusetts, and my first night home, I couldn't sleep because it was so loud. Mm. And I said to my mom, I'm like, God, it's so loud here. And she said, what are you talking about? And when I got home, I realized I had made a terrible mistake, that I needed to stay out there in the field, and that's what I wanted to do. So it, it was so, such an extreme experience right off the bat. You know, that was my first real immersion into field work. And I, and while I was in it, I didn't know it. But when I left it, I loved it. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's really what I want to do. That's where I want to be. So that was kind of it for me. Um, that, that, that's an awesome story. We, uh, my friends and I, we have uh, what we call the fun meter and uh, with our fun meter, it, it sort of works backwards of the way that you would think. Uh, you know, ones and twos are sort of like your roller coasters where you have fun, 
uh, while you're doing it, and it's extremely short. And then you don't really think about that, how fun that was later in life. Uh, whereas the the sevens, eights, and all the way up to tens are things that basically suck while you're experiencing uh, that. You know, just like what you experienced in your in, in that story. But you look back at it later, and you realize how much fun you had, uh, even though you were you sort of felt miserable at the time. Yes, that is, that's absolutely it. I, and I think that, you know, time, well, it didn't take that much time for me to have that perspective, but certainly when you look back on things, that's what it is. It's like, wow, I got through that. And, you know, looking, if I had the opportunity to do it again, if someone said to me today, hey, you want to go sit on an island that nobody lives on for you know, six weeks and stare at sea lions, you know, for 12 hours a day, I'd say, sign me up now. Yeah. Where, where do I get on the plane? <laughs> it, it definitely takes a special kind of person to be interested in something like that. Like that, that's something that would interest me uh, as a outdoors person and someone who likes to hunt. Uh, but for someone like my wife, who is very much uh, a city girl uh, that she would look at, look at anyone who came up with that, uh, possible idea and say you're absolutely out of your mind <laughs> uh, oh for sure and and it's not like I had this huge um, outdoor background growing up because I didn't my family wasn't you know in the woods all the time and going on nature walks and things and that, that was not me I mean uh, I lived a typical suburban life we had a small yard uh, no one in my family really hunted that much. And if they did, it wasn't a big part of their lives. Um, now, I did have an aunt and uncle that uh, loved to camp. So they would take me uh, during the summer. We would camp on the Kangamangas Highway up in the White Mountains. And we would hike for the weekend, and I would complain as we went up the mountain, hiking down the mountain. <laughs> so it's not, again, it's not like I had great memories. of. I, I certainly enjoyed my time with them. But this, that experience, that field work experience, I had never encountered before. And, and I had nothing to compare it to either. Um, it was just so outside of my my world um and I think that's it and and really and that's when you find out whether you want to do this or not you know or do anything really is when you immerse yourself in whatever experience that is and and then see how you feel so yeah that that's awesome so that was your first experience and, and now you're with the Pennsylvania Game Commission uh uh, where else have you been uh, before, you know, between those two points? Um, let's see, where have I been? Well, in between uh, that, I, I got, uh, you know, when I graduated from undergrad, I thought, and you just went out and, you know, started applying for jobs, and that's certainly what I did. And I could have wallpapered my bedroom with, rejection letters. Uh, I always share that with when people ask me, you know, what, 
what is that? You know, how did you come about with where you are now? And I'm like, well, I was naive and all those other things, but it all kind of worked out. Um, so yeah, I started applying for jobs after, with my bachelor's degree and I didn't get any. And there was a, and of course I was looking for full-time work and a seasonal job came up, uh, of to catch deer for, um, you know, trapping season, which would be from January to March, April, and then followed up that opportunity to make it a little bit more uh, inviting would be followed up by I could TA uh, a summer camp uh, class. So I put in for that and... Lo and behold, I got it. It, Like I said, it wasn't what I was looking for, but I needed to work. I couldn't work it. I couldn't live at home anymore, you know. (laughs) Got to get out. So that's what I did, and I got that job, and that was in Maryland. So that I had no animal capture experience when I got that job or when I was hired for that job. Um, That Alaska job wasn't, uh, well, it was field work. Um, It wasn't animal handling. I just did observations. So handling an animal, I was completely naive uh, with regard to that. And my first weekend down there, we, I had uh, me and this other woman were to capture deer, collar deer, tag deer. We used drop nets. Um, and the, we worked for a graduate student. It was his graduate project. We were catching deer for him. And the first weekend we were there, he showed us how to set up a net. And he sat the net that night and lo and behold caught deer and, you know, showed us what we needed to do. And when I walked up on that first, that first night when there were live deer, live deer that I could touch underneath the net, again, it was one of those things where, Holy cow, what did I get myself into? Deer were making noise. These god awful noises. I'd never heard a deer make a noise in my life. <laughs> and I was told when I got to the net, someone called me over and said, Sit on this deer. And I said, What? And they said, Sit on this deer. And that's what I did. <laughs> you know, and and me and this my partner. It was awesome. That that was the best field season I've ever had. Uh, we caught deer. If we didn't catch deer, it was a fluke. We caught deer every day. Um, and, you know, we, we used to brag that we had caught the most deer in a season in that particular field site. I think we still hold the record, but I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so that so I did that for a season and because I was working for a graduate student, he was actually finishing up his project and they were looking for another student and they asked me if I would be interested in doing a project and I said, Yeah. Um I before that I didn't even know about graduate school. Again, I <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how I did get to where I am today. It's very, I had a lot of um, serendipitous moments, so to speak. A lot of good people that came into my life at the right time. Um, And so, yes, that's how I got my 
got into graduate school. I had that project, so I caught deer for another two years. And after that, with my graduate degree, I continued. I worked in Maryland for a couple years after that on a, on a farm, you know, coordinating their graduate work. And then I went to Minnesota. So, and I worked for the Minnesota DNR for a few years, coordinating their chronic wasting disease program. Hmm? Okay. Um, if, if you could real quick, uh, just, I'm interested, but also tell everyone else out there, how exactly do you set up a drop net to catch deer? Ah, they are, uh, not easy to move. I'll tell you that. It's a giant net, 80, about 80 by 80 square feet. And they are set up posts on the, uh, corner posts and big steel posts that so you drive a stake into the ground these corner posts sit over top of them and then these corner posts are anchored there are two anchors to hold it out because of the weight of the net will pull those uh four corner posts in so once you get the corner posts up you get the anchors in, you, they have winches and wire on each corner post, and those hook to the net, and you crank them up. You crank the net up so it's hanging. And there's always a center post because, again, the weight of that net can make it a little bit low, and the deer don't like that. Uh, so you have a center post that kind of props up and, and holds some of that weight of that net. And you put uh, a little bit of bait around in the center of the net and around that corner post to get the deer as close from an edge as possible. Because when you trip that net, there are wires that run to each corner that are set on a trigger. And when those wires are pulled, either manually or remotely, uh, it trips those triggers, it drops the four corners of the net. And amazingly enough, deer can run out from underneath that net with that net falling. Uh, yeah. now, how how high off the ground is that net, would you say? Um, it They can get pretty high. I mean, they have to be, I have to be able to walk underneath it without touching the net. So, and I'm 5'3", but they're usually higher than that. Um but not not too much. It just has to be the the deer aren't going to hit it when they walk underneath. So five or six feet off the ground at least, um, and they they uh and like I said, it's like it's not that high, and the weight and how it falls is pretty quick. Um, but it is utterly amazing how deer can slip out from underneath them. Yeah, they are extremely fast animals. <laughs> they don't always well, look that fast, but whenever they get spooked, I mean, they can they can make some ground pretty quick. It, it's unbelievable. We had um, I had an opportunity. Now I haven't drop net. I didn't drop net deer since my graduate school days, but I had an opportunity to do it uh, last year, um, and I sat the net. Well, the rest of the crew sat in the truck and kibitzed, and I waited, 
and dropped the net, and we went down there, and we were um, attending the deer, because the first thing you do when you have a deer in your in your possession, so to speak, is blindfold it, uh, because that visual stimulus is too much for them, or the minute you, or as soon as you can take that visual stimulus away, uh, the more they calm down. Um, so... We were doing that, and there was one deer. I, we had four deer under the net. And there was one deer close to the edge. So the other three were being attended to. I called someone over to help me with that one on, on the edge. And as they bent down to touch the deer that was under the net, it ran away. I was like, <laughs> what just happened? It was. It happened so quick, and that deer was under the net, but right at the corner. And if they find, if their nose can get, isn't in a, a square of that net, and they can scoot, they scoot right out. I was, I was very disappointed that you know I went from four deer captured to three deer captured that day. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, so what, what does daily life, uh, as far as your professional life what what does that look like for you what do you how do you spend your sort of typical days uh it's not nearly as much fun as it was back in the day so to speak <laughs> um well it, you know what as we had talked about you know what lures you into a particular profession is usually not what that profession is and and certainly that is what happens with me um if i could have made a living um, doing field work for the rest of my career. I certainly would have done that, but unfortunately you, you grow up at some point um, and you need a little bit more stability. So field work is usually obviously seasonal because it depends what critter you're working on and what project you're working on, but it's never, you know, year round, so to speak. And, um, so that necessitates these other, you know, basically moving up the food chain uh, in your field, which is what I did. So now, you know, I worked in Minnesota for the DNR out there, and I worked for the Game Commission. It is, uh, I spend a lot of my time behind a computer now uh, because we do a lot of coordination. Sure, we still have research going on, but that research needs to be coordinated, um, and written about and all that sort of stuff. So um, typically, depending on my, my day, uh, I'll answer emails and, you know, deal with issues that come up with regard to different projects that I work on and, you know, meetings and this sort of thing. So there isn't a whole lot of that fun aspect anymore but because we do still have research going on here I always say this is the upside with regard to being in uh, a non-field tech position now is that I get to pick when I go out in the field and I always say I'm not picking a day that has bad weather (laughs) that that would definitely be a plus to uh, being in your position (laughs) Exactly. So while 
you know, the bio aids that we have working on these projects need to be out there every day in all kinds of weather, you know, depending on the season and what's going on and what their duties are. I don't have to be anymore. So I can think and choose my days in the field. Um, so, the, and I have to remember that that's my upside while I don't get to do it every day. Uh, that, that is at least one consolation. <laughs> So with that in mind, what what is your favorite part of your job? The favorite part of my job, um, and that's the other thing with regard to, you know, the older I get and, and how jobs evolve over time. Um, even if you're in the same position that you've been in for 10, 20, however many years, the job always does seem to evolve. And my favorite part of my job now is uh, outreach and communications. That's really what I love to do. Uh, and I only really discovered that a few years ago with the Deer Forest blog um, when we started that for this project to try to get the, because that's one thing about research, uh, any kind of research, whether it be medical research or wildlife research or, you know, you name it. Um, Research is great, and we can learn a lot from it, but then we publish those results in, you know, peer-reviewed journals, which is, again, wonderful because that allows other people in our field to uh, know what we've done and perhaps learn from it and apply it, you know, to their, to their project or whatever facet of life that they're working in. But if you don't work in that field, and you don't have any direct connections, and you hear about all this research, and you don't know what's going on. Um, I really like to try to basically translate what we do into what other people can actually relate to. Um, because we, like every profession, we use a lot of jargon, and there are, are a lot of... Um, specific things that relate directly to the wildlife management field that if you're not working in that field, you don't, you don't get it. You know, what in the world does that mean? Um, but to, to make it relatable to everybody, uh, you need to communicate that. And our blog gives us a great vehicle to do that. So that's what I, I really love doing that. This is a good time to take a quick break and mention one of our partners, SOS Gear. As you know, SOS Gear is a small business out of Montana who specializes in paracord products. Today, I want to highlight the rifle slings Chelsea makes. These things are tough. Available in 32 to 48 inch lengths, these slings are made the last. They come with Uncle Mike swivel attachments, which are also known for their durability. There are a wide range of colors to pick from, so you can make your own statement. Check out all the products she's made over at her Instagram, SOSGearMT, or her Twitter, at SOSGearMT. You can order a rifle sling of your own at SOSGearMT.com. That's SOSGearMT.com. Yeah, I, I am a uh, religious reader of that blog. Uh, it's just fascinating information that gets put out there from that study uh so but as a hunter what 
I mean, how does that help me? I, I mean, I like reading it because I find it interesting, but how can I look at the information that's being presented and have that as a way to, to help me find deer whenever I'm looking for them in the woods? Well, I think the take-home message from that is good luck. Uh, <laughs> we have we have a lot of deer collared, and I think um, the deer forest study, of course, was was started because we we wanted to understand how deer interacted with uh, different forest measures because. To have healthy deer, you need healthy forests. I mean, to have healthy anything, you need healthy habitat. Uh, and to understand how those two interacted. Now, uh, how does that help a hunter? Not really help him, but the byproduct of that study kind of gives hunters an insight into the deer world. Because we have oodles of location data all times of year. And, you know, during hunting season, those GPS callers pick up to take locations every 20 minutes to understand how deer move and, and with hunters in the woods and things like that. And, of course, we have very interesting uh, location data during the rut and things like that. And if you were... And we have focused a lot on, or with the blog on those deer movements just to get it, just to try to relay to people that, you know, you see all these articles with regard to patterning a buck and, you know, everybody seems to have a trail cam now out there. And I'm a big fan of trail cam. They're a whole lot of fun. You get to see, you know, basically it's a window into the woods. Uh, but you can be watching a deer for months. And then you go out to try to hunt him, and he is nowhere to be found. Uh, and our our GPS data show that, that they are just everywhere. And while you, as a hunter, can only be one place. So hunters that are, hunters are at a severe disadvantage when it comes to hunting deer. Because deer have it all over us. I, I think part of uh, that blog is what, I mean, I, I kind of already knew this, but it definitely uh, reinforced it that it's better to be lucky than good if you're a hunter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> experience. A lot, a lot of has, it comes down to luck. Yeah, experience in the woods uh, trying to find deer uh, and, you know, specifically certain ones and things like that, that has definitely taught me that uh, that is the case, that it's definitely better to be to be lucky than extremely good because they, and that's something that I, that I have noticed uh, from reading that blog is, is just the, the change in behavior in certain parts of the season. And even from before the season to during the season and just sort of where they go, it's, it's, um, you think it should be easy, but it's not at all. <laughs> right. Right. And, and that's really, uh, you know, I think our perspective as people um, is, I've seen this deer, here he comes, you know, he's past the trail cam here. I know he generally lives in this area, which, okay, but how do you know, that's the, how do you know what tree to sit at or be up to make sure he walks 
past you, it, you know, it kind of is, I don't know. I mean, certainly if you, if you are a hunter and you spend time in the woods prior to the season and scout, yeah, it's going to give you a leg up, but that doesn't guarantee that that deer is going to walk within, within range uh, when you're actually out there during the season. And some of our deer make crazy movements. You know, they're, they're, they're obviously the exception to the rule, but, you know, our most famous buck went and died in the place he visited one time um, prior to uh, prior to him healing over from whatever he did. We still don't know what happened to him. Um, but where he died, he had only visited one time, and we had him collared for over a year. So why did he go back up there? It's just like, wow. You know, and that's the other thing. We find with these GPS collars, which when I was a graduate student, we didn't have GPS. I, we had, you know, VHF. I always want to say VHS, but it's VHF <laughs> radio collars. And, you know, I was out there every day uh, taking an azimuth from two different locations to try to biangulate, you know, the location on this deer. Now, with these satellites and GPS collars, we, and, and, you know, with the VHF collar, you can only get so many locations in a day. But with these GPS collars, we can get, you know, depending on how much battery life you have and how many locations you want, you can get a lot. So we can track deer movements now um, a lot more or get a lot more information on where they go and when they go. So, you know, this time of year, does are getting ready to have fawns. We have a couple of, of does that go to the same area every spring and summer and then go back to their, you know, quote, normal home range where we caught them originally in, in the fall. So it's definitely given us, I think, a, um, a more holistic picture of these deer. That, and, of course, you know, I, I would say that deer have got to be the most studied species out there. You know, there's a gazillion deer projects um, and reams and reams of data on them, yet we're still learning new stuff which is just a testament to how complex a critter can be. Yeah, it, it is, you know, a lot of, I feel like a lot of people at the very, at least in the beginning, until so they start looking into it, uh, if they ever do, uh, we sort of put ourselves above these other animal species. But when you really start looking into some of the research about them, and like you said, we, we're still constantly learning things about deer, uh, they're much more complex and a lot smarter than I think a lot of people give them credit for. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I say we are at a, every hunter, in my opinion, is at a severe disadvantage uh, in the woods when it comes to a deer. A deer has it all over them, um, and and that's the other thing we have found that if a deer lives through its first hunting season, it makes it even harder to harvest that deer because now they kind of know the safe area or, you know, they don't, it's not so, it's not very, it's not cognitive. Like we would think, Oh, Hey, it's time to go to my safe spot. Um, but they just know that's the, 
that's where they need to be this particular time of year and that's where they go. And yeah. So if, and some of these other, like some of our antlerless deer, they routinely live into their teens for crying out loud. We have double digit does out there and I think the only way they get harvested is that they have a moment of senility where they kind of forget because, you know, you have a 10-year-old doe out there and she knows everything and good luck. Yeah. Yeah. The, the deer are just, it's, I, they have a ridiculous amount of respect from, from people like me and Talon who understand just, I mean, how tough it is to even see the deer, let alone uh, get a chance uh, during hunting season. Right, and and that's the yeah, and and even you know everything about them makes them completely and utterly perfectly adapted to where they live, you know, from from their ears to their nose to their coat, um, you know, their sense of smell is incredible. They can hear things. They're their coat just makes them completely blend in with their background. Um, but that's what millennia of, you know, evolution does. It, it produces the best, you know, the best prototype, so to speak, for survival. And, and that's what deer are. I mean, they're a prey species. That's, I mean, we're not the only ones that hunt them over you know history and they need they're built for survival and and that's that's definitely what they do yeah and their uh ability their resiliency and their ability to to adapt uh you know just the way that they can live in state forests of pennsylvania or in suburbia uh even some living in some urban settings or even the ones that are living in western areas that have far less food availability compared to the east i mean the fact that that the white tail has such a a big range of where they're able to not just survive but also even thrive is absolutely amazing yeah it it really is and that and that's one thing with regard to uh deer is their incredible uh their incredible reproductive capacity because you know they're a large mammal they shouldn't be able to shouldn't, I say, shouldn't be able to expand their populations like they do, but they do because a deer will basically sacrifice everything for reproduction. And when I say sacrifice everything for reproduction, if they're living in like poor habitat or not the best habitat, deer, those will get smaller because obviously they can't bulk up like you know, if they were living in awesome habitat, but they are not shutting down reproduction. They are going to crank out fawns every year, like a nice fat doe living in, you know, agricultural Ohio. Um, you know, whether those fawns survive or not because of, um, you know, the, her limited resources in, in, in being able to support them after they're born is on is besides the point. She's going to do her best. She's going to put them on the ground and roll the dice. If they make it great, if they don't, she'll try again next year. But yeah, their capacity for reproduction 
in any kind of habitat is uh, is kind of what makes them so successful, I think, and amazing as a as a large mammal. So we've learned all this stuff about deer, uh, and yet there's still more to learn. But we've learned the, everything that we've learned because basically because of research studies. So could you just give us just a very uh, broad overview of what goes what goes in the planning a research study and, and making it happen? I understand that there's a whole lot of details that go into it, but what are some of the basic things that that we would have to think about if we if someone listening to this decided they wanted to start a research study? Well, when we talk about research, basically you need to start out, research always starts with a question. So what question are you asking and how do you get that answer? So that's just, that's the basic. And you need to remember that as you're moving through all these different aspects of a research project, sure, there's a whole lot of fun things that you can do and learn about. Um, but you really need to stay focused on what's your question and how do we get to that answer. So it's so important to have, um, when you're talking about research, a good uh, objective or hypothesis. And then from there, build upon that. Um, but then you get into the logistics. Okay, so we have our question. How are we going to answer that? So if we look at the deer forest study, it's, you know, how are deer interacting with the forest with regard to, you know, where their movements are, how are plots, you know, vegetation being affected, all these other things. So, okay, so that's what we're looking to get. How do we get that? Well, then you have to look at, all right, we need to understand what harvest rates are and deer movements are, so that means we actually have to catch deer now. And, you know, looking at harvest rates and movement. So for catching deer, we need to tag them so we know which ones they are. We need to have a mechanism for, uh, if they're harvested, for hunters to be able to let us know that. So then there's that system we have to build on the back end. So that's why we have, you know, if you harvest one of our deer that is tagged, it has an 800 number on it and you can call it in. Um, so, you know, there's that arm of it. But then there's other thing about research that is always kind of a bummer is your budget because you can come up with the best project in the world, but if you don't have the means to support it, it those are the things you have to really take into consideration is what are the resources that you need, whether it be uh, flat out just money or time or personnel, all those things are factored in beforehand. So sure, you know, a lot of people ask, well, why aren't you looking at this? Or why can't you do that? Or, you know, different, different things that we absolutely would love to research or know the answer to, but the logistical constraints on that just make it impossible for us to do. That, that that makes sense. Uh, I think everyone, you know, has grand plans until they figure out how much it's going to cost. Uh, you know, and then you have to just sort of adjust, I guess, as you, as best you can to make the really stretch that dollar as far as you can. Yeah, and we, ha you know, and there are ways to make that dollar stretch. You know, we can partner 
uh, with other groups. You know, we've had partnerships with other uh, conservation groups that have actually bought equipment and then given it to us for use, you know. So they'll come to us and say, hey, we'd like to. And it's almost easier that way. They want to give us money, and we're like, no, 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 we don't want the money. <laughs> but if you'd like to buy this for us, we'd really appreciate that. And, you know, basically they buy something and then donate it back, then we can use it um, as, you know, different aspects of the study. But, yeah, it, and it's really, it's really hard well, I guess it's not really, it's not hard to understand. Everybody works on a budget at some point in time, whether it be your household budget or your college, but, you know, you're budgeting for your kids for college or, or different things like that. There, you know, you would love to do this, but you can only afford that. So that really drives or dictates what we can and can't do. So one of the questions I really wanted to ask you, so I'm going to ask it now, is what's the what is your least favorite part of your job? And I'm basing I'm basing my excitement for this question on a previous conversation that we had, where I know what I would pick for my least favorite. So I'm curious to see <laughs> what your least favorite part of your job would be. My least favorite part of the job. Um, I think my least favorite part of the job is. Probably what everybody would say is the bureaucracy of dealing in whatever structure that you work in. Um, I And knowing that while as a biologist, I may know a lot about this particular topic, whatever it may be, I don't make decisions. I only make recommendations in my position. So um, it can get really frustrating when policy really doesn't match what um, the research is telling us or different management things. Um, and But you know what? That's part of the job. And unfortunately, they didn't really tell us that when I was in school. Although, actually, maybe in one of my wildlife management classes, they did. <laughs> I remember... You know, the, it, it's famous now. Everybody in the wildlife field has heard it. But, you know, wildlife manage, management is basically 10% wildlife management and 90% people management. Or you may hear those percentages shift a little bit. But that's basically what it is. Uh, and I was like, when I heard that, I was like, ah, come on. That's, I don't know what they're talking about. And then you learn. <laughs> And then you grow up and then you learn. Um, but I think that's why, so while it's frustrating for me um, not to see certain things implemented because I'm not in a position or decision-making position, I think that feeds into what I love most about my job, which is the communication aspect of it. So perhaps while well, I'm not communicating it, right or maybe if i communicate it better more people will understand why we need to do certain things so it's kind of it's kind of the two different sides to the same coin yeah, that makes a lot of sense and, and now that you said it i i completely understand where you're coming from but i really thought it was going to be uh the cwd sampling uh that you talked <laughs> about that you had to do <laughs> well 
You know what? I think I'm, that's more, the answer that I gave is probably more of a holistic, you know, more broad career sense. But if you're talking about the nitty gritty, what I do in my job that I do not like, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's deer aging and brain scooping. Um, you know, deer aging, we do every year. Uh, 30 teams in the game commission, you know, two to three people per team. We descend upon hundreds of processors across the state, and I spend three weeks of the year barrel diving to pull heads out. And, yeah, by by the third week, there's a, there's a whole lot of jokes being said and you know stand clear the last head in the barrel is always the soupiest head and you while you want it to be cold you don't want it to be too cold because you have to work outside most of the time and your hands freeze with a metal jaw spreader but then again you can't have it too warm because the week of deer heads in a barrel that you have to go to the bottom, a 50-gallon drum that you have to go to the very bottom of, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not fun. Yeah, there's not a whole lot uh, that grosses me out, but I feel like that would probably be one of them. <laughs> that's, uh, that doesn't sound a whole lot like, like you know a whole what? Lot fun to me. You know what, Jason? Perhaps you should um, come out with me one day. You're <laughs> <Dear, dear age. laughs> There's a, there's a lot of things that you do that I would like to join and volunteer my time to do. That is one I'm not sure I'm going to take you up on that offer. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, and that's the thing. Photographs, photographs do relay well, but it's never you can't smell a photograph, and that is you know part of the experience is the odor that follows you around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so bring up the topic CWD. Uh, I don't want to dive too much into it just because that can be three or four podcast episodes all on its own. Uh, but just should hunters really be concerned about CWD? Uh, I think they should. I certainly am. Um, you know, chronic wasting disease was I had my my introduction into this career, the field, um, with chronic wasting disease in Minnesota back in 2002, because that's when it was originally discovered in Wisconsin, uh, which was the first time it had been found east of the Mississippi. And it really changed the game with regard to chronic wasting disease, because prior to that, Nobody really knew about it. Nobody really cared about it. It was in Colorado and Wyoming, and that was all well and good. But, you know, nobody noticed, really. Um, when it came to Wisconsin, with Wisconsin and their whitetails, that, that deer herd is very – the complexion of that deer herd is very different from anything that is found in Colorado and Wyoming, and that's when people really took notice. And, you know, this disease is very, it's difficult to relay why it, it's important and different because of the nature of the disease. It's a very slow-moving disease. Uh, it takes over a year for an animal to show that they're even sick. 
uh, unlike hemorrhagic disease, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, which we see um, flare-ups of in Pennsylvania every, you know, it can be every year, but, you know, large outbreaks of EHD usually only occur every five, five years or so. And people get much more wound up about that disease because they see a large number of animals die in a short period of time. And I never get wound up about EHD because I know it's a seasonal passing thing. And because what I know about white-tailed deer and their incredible ability to reproduce, I know that even if there was a large lot in a small localized area, I know those deer are coming back in a few years and everything will be fine. And that, and it's a virus and the vector that causes it, those little midges that fly around, they die at the first frost because so, so that's fine that, that that outbreak is over. Unlike chronic wasting disease that, you know, is around basically forever. Um, if you're not lucky like New York and, you know, find it quickly or, you have a very difficult time of removing it from your landscape. So then you have to learn to live with it um, and do your best to try to manage the, um, manage the impacts of it because there are impacts. And it's a prion disease, which is a brain disease, and it's that disease we, we – there is a human form of, of a prion disease. Um, there's also a, a bovine form, which is, you know, known as mad cow. And prion diseases, there's not, while we know stuff about them, we don't know everything about them. And we're still learning. And I think that, you know, the more we learn about this class of diseases, the less the less and less uh, comforting it is because we just keep learning more and it's just, it's, none of it is ever good news, which is unfortunate. I hope one day we get some good news about prion diseases, but right now I haven't seen any. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping as well. It's definitely something that uh, I'm reading up as much as I can about as new research comes out because I feel like it is something that personally, something that I uh, – I'm concerned about just because, you know, the, the main reason that, that I hunt and the main reason why a lot of people hunt is uh, for the food, uh, to be able to, to eat the meat. Uh, so as of right now, uh, at least within the last couple of days, I haven't heard, but uh, you there hasn't been any human cases uh, coming from eating deer meat. But the CDC recommends that if you have a deer that's tested positive, that you not eat that meat. Uh, would you eat the meat of a deer that tested CWD positive? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm going to follow the recommendations of the CDC. And uh, no, I, I would not. And, you know, the only thing that you are going to find in my freezer is venison. I mean, that. We do in my family that that is our our protein source. We we don't buy beef at the store. We don't um, 
none of that. The only, that's what we eat. And it would, it, if, if we hunted in an area uh, that was, that went CWD positive, my, my game plan would be that that deer gets tested and it is not consumed until the results are in. Now, the test for chronic wasting disease is not a food safety test. Um, in fact, you're never going to get a negative chronic wasting disease uh, result. You're only going to get a not detected. Uh, you'll get positive or not detected. Those are or unsuitable for testing, but we'll just put that one aside. Um, so it's either going to be positive or not detected. And because it's enough because of the nature of the disease, if, it, if an animal is recently infected, um, it's very, it could slip, you know, the test could miss it if it's a recent infection, meaning those prions haven't collected in, in a portion of the brain that, that can be seen with the test. So you're never going to get a negative test. And like I said, that test is not a food safety test. However, it is a, another piece of information for the hunter or consumer of that venison to make an informed decision on. So it all depends. It, now, uh, have people consumed CWD-positive animals? Absolutely. Um, knowingly and I would, I'm sure, unknowingly have consumed them. Uh, but the people that have knowingly done it, it depends what your risk tolerance is. You know, are, are you willing, like we said, there have there has been no documentation of chronic wasting disease crossing that species barrier, and it appears to be a very strong species barrier. Um, so if, if your risk tolerance, you're okay with that, then, then you make the decision. Um, because... Ultimately, the decision to consume any harvested animal lies with the hunter. Uh, so I jaywalk. I'm willing to take that. <laughs> that is, uh, that's my risk tolerance. I'm willing to do that. But uh, my risk tolerance for consuming chronic wasting, uh, an animal that tested positive for chronic, no, there's no risk tolerance for me there. <laughs> Very well said. Well, Janine, I uh, want to be mindful of your time, and we're uh, coming up on a, a pretty long podcast now. So I want to thank you for coming on with us, and I uh, hope to maybe be able to get you on in the future to talk a little more about uh, some of the research that you're involved in. Uh, thank you so much. It was It was great talking with you. that'll do it for this bonus episode today. I really want to thank Janine Flegel for doing this interview with me. It was great to hear about her life leading up to becoming a wildlife biologist for Pennsylvania Game Commission uh, and also you know, what she sort of does on a semi-daily basis and what she really enjoys about uh, her job and what some of the frustrating parts are. Those were a little bit eye-opening to me uh, but not necessarily something that's really surprising. It was just different to hear her voice those concerns and it's understandable anyone that works in a public sector uh, really has to manage the expectations and 
the behaviors of other people and that really made a whole lot of sense again i thank janine for coming on out and i thank you for listening if you could give us a rating and a review on your podcast listening app of choice uh, and if you ever want to get in touch with in touch with us uh, you can contact us through the anchor app where we do our recording you can find us on twitter at conserve underscore wild on Instagram at the con, uh, conserve the wild, uh, or you can email us info dot conserve the wild at gmail dot com. I always like to get a little listener input, uh, even if you have uh, something that you want to talk about or you want to hear us talk about. Let us know. Uh, we're always looking for new episodes and new ideas. Again, thanks for listening. See you next time and stay wild. Mm-hmm.